we are now returning to our study in Luke's gospel. We'll be in chapter 14. Tonight, studying verses 7 through 14. If you have an ESV, most editions of the ESV, you can find that on page 873. And as we read, we're actually going to read beginning back at verse 1 just for context. But again, our study will be just verses 7 through 14. So if you were with us a couple of weeks ago as we began this passage, you'll remember that Jesus was invited to a dinner party. And it was on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees there invited a man who was sick, a man who had dropsy, uh, to this party. And so as this man comes in, Jesus takes the opportunity to, to heal. And they're watching to see what Jesus will do if he will, in fact, heal on the Sabbath. And so Jesus does. He heals the man. And almost like the entertainment for the evening has ended, uh, Jesus sends the man away. He teaches them about the Sabbath. And then he takes the chance to watch them. They begin to scatter around for these seats of honor around a table. So now uh, we'll come to our study. But before we read together, let's go once again to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing on our study together this evening, that you would make our hearts humble and our ears receptive to your word, that you would teach us uh, by your word, move us with your spirit, humble our hearts, Lord. Again, we ask your blessing on our teaching tonight, Lord. Amen. Now, is our custom, if you'll stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of God from Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. Now, he told the parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return, and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading, the hearing of the word. Please be seated. My high school, back in Chattanooga, Tennessee, sits right at the foot of a mountain, Lookout Mountain. From the parking lot of my high school, uh, you can hop in your car and in a matter of minutes be going up the steep incline up the mountain. But on a cloudy day, the way that the Tennessee River carves the valley around the mountain 
and with the right amount of humidity and if there's no wind, the clouds can sink heavy around the mountain. And standing in that parking lot of my high school, looking up, if you didn't know there was a mountain behind those clouds, you wouldn't be able to see it. And I've seen this phenomenon many times, and it's a fascinating thing to have seen this mountain day in, day out, going to high school and look up and go, I can't see it. However, on a clear day, if you drive up Lookout Mountain and go to a tourist attraction called Rock City, you can see incredibly far. And some of you may know this, you may have driven through the southeast and you've seen the red barns with the black shingles on it that have Sea Rock City painted on the side. Now that's done, yes, as advertising, but from Rock City you can see so far that those farmers who have those barns were hoping you might see their barn and see that sign that says Sea Rock City. And you can see quite literally all over the southeast, the advertisement is see seven states. Come to Rock City and you can see seven different states on a clear day. Lookout Mountain is in Georgia, right on the border of Tennessee. Just a few miles to the west is the border in Alabama, so that makes sense. You can also see to North Carolina, South Carolina, and on the clearest of clear days, there's a mountain that sticks up right on the border between Virginia and Kentucky. So from the top of Lookout Mountain, with that vantage point, you can look out and see just that mountain that crosses the border between Virginia and Kentucky. What a difference that vantage point can make from the bottom where you might not even know there's a mountain there to the top where you could see quite literally most of the southeast. And so our text this morning shows us the difference in our spiritual vantage points. The text calls us to examine our hearts and ask us whether we have the truth of the resurrection firmly fixed in our hearts. Do we have a resurrection view? Because that's the final verse in what we read this evening is talking about the resurrection of the just. So do we have that in the forefront of our minds? I think that's the question that this text is calling us to answer. So do we have the resurrection firmly fixed in our hearts? That's the first thing we're going to look at is our hearts. And once our hearts are shaped, how do our actions follow? That's our second point. And finally, we're going to look at the blessing of the resurrection. So our hearts, our actions, and the resurrection. That's our outline for this evening. Now our text begins with Christ watching those invited to this dinner party. They're clamoring around for places of honor. Back in verse 7, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. Helpful for us to understand this may be an understanding of Jewish table customs, of how they dined and, and reclined at the table together. Now a typical dinner party table at this time would have been roughly U-shaped with the place of the most significance at the head of the table, at that apex of the U, the next most prominent place to the right hand of, of the one who sat in that place of highest honor. And so it would go down around the prongs that way to the very bottom, the very ends of those prongs being the place, perhaps not the place of shame, but the place of, of least honor. So people are brushing past each other, trying to get closer to that apex, closer to the U. And we don't have much in our culture that's quite the same way. Most of our tables are not shaped this way. They're rectangular, square, or, or many of us even like the, the King Arthur view of tables, that it, even if it's not a round table, that there's no, there's no inequality that happens at our table. We're all equals around this. But I don't know what your families did for Thanksgiving tradition, 
but uh, in our house, there were enough people that we couldn't all fit around one table. So what did we do? We had a kid's table off to the side. And so the adults could have, have the meal, have their table at, at the big main dining room table, and off to the side, perhaps in another room, was the kid's table. But there's always that question when someone starts to grow up a little bit, when they hit 10 years old, 11, 12, when do they get to sit at the real table? When do they get to move up to the big table? Maybe that's not the case that happened for you. Maybe it's wondering uh, when you're going to get to carve the turkey. When you're going to get to stand up there with that knife and ask around the table, dark meat or white? Maybe that's the question. Or perhaps it's that secret recipe of grandma's, and you wonder if this is the year that she's going to let you make the stuffing or bake the pie. Is she going to trust you with that family secret that you've heard so much about and tasted so many years? Perhaps that's the question. But then there's that moment when someone you don't think should be trusted with that recipe or get to move up from the kid's table does. So you start to scoff a little bit. Think, oh, that's not right. How dare they be so bold? And you can imagine the situation in our text. That's what's going on. These people are scooting past each other, trying to get closer to that place of honor. How could they be so bold? How could they be so arrogant? So what does all this do? What does all this rushing about, this, this clamoring for these places of honor, what does it do? Well, it betrays the attitude of their hearts. These people had hearts that weren't humble. They have hearts that are proud, and their actions demonstrate just that. Their actions betrayed the state of their hearts, and Christ was watching. And so he has a simple solution for this. In verses 8 through 10, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. What's Christ's solution? Go and sit in the low spot. Wait to be moved up. His, his advice is patience. Don't seek it out for yourself. That way there are no expectations that aren't met. You can't be disappointed. You can only be honored by moving up further. There's a great deal more we could talk about with Jewish hospitality and their table customs. But the plain and simple truth of this text, is, it's right there for us all to see. Don't be proud. Don't be self-seeking. Be humble. Have a heart that is humble. Have a heart with a resurrection view. What I mean by this is that have a heart that's not so focused on the immediate situation. Don't be so focused on the here and now. Don't be so quick to exalt yourself. But if we're honest, we, we do this, don't we? We all seek to better ourselves. And we live in a culture that that this is what our culture preaches, self-improvement, self-happiness above all. And you can just go into the self-help section even of a bookstore and read some of the titles, titles like Looking Out for Number One, where you are great at making money, or The Power of Self-Discipline. These kinds of titles, are they're everywhere. We live in a culture that's so self-centered. That's what sin does. 
That's what sin does to us, and that's what sin does to our culture. It, it twists us. It perverts us. It turns our focus off of God and turns us inward. This is not what a resurrection view does. A resurrection view keeps us focused on Christ and our need for him as our Savior. It also teaches us that everyone has that same need. Rich or poor, black or white, young or old, we all have a need for Christ. So how does this work? How do we get this resurrection view? Well, Christ teaches us in verse 11. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humble yourself. It sounds easy. It's two words, humble yourself. But it's backwards. It's not what culture tells us. It's not what sin tells us either. Instead, we ought to remember that we were once dead in our sins and our trespasses. And that is the great humbling thought. We who belong to Christ were dead and have been brought back to life. Amen. We've done nothing good enough to earn salvation. No one has and no one can. We do not deserve to sit at the head of the table. We deserve the foot. But Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection gives us life. Remember his greatness. Remember his goodness, his grace, his mercy. That's the resurrection view. But the proud heart doesn't have this. The arrogant heart, the puffed up heart, sees only the need to get closer to the head of the table. It blinds us to the truth of the resurrection. But seeing Christ's mercy, his grace in our lives, it changes us, and it ought to. It shapes us. If we have this resurrection view, if we have a heart that's focused on Christ, it shapes our actions as well. So as Christ often does, he doesn't just leave it at our hearts, at our attitudes. He pushes us further. pushes us to act on this resurrection view that we have. So what, what good is having this first-person view of standing on top of that mountain where you can see everything? What good is knowing all of that, knowing the power, the comfort, the peace, the glory, and, and the humility of the resurrection? What good is knowing all that if we're not changed by it and our actions don't follow? So Christ takes the very situation he finds himself in a dinner party. And he uses that as an example. He has just witnessed people clamoring for the seat of honor. And so he teaches them, back in verses 12 and 13. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. This is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees have done, isn't it? Sure, they invited a sick man, but only to test Jesus, not to entertain him as a guest. None of these people have brought this man in as a friend to give him a meal. No, they've only sought him out to make themselves look better. They tried to use this man with dropsy to catch Jesus in a verbal or a theological trap. 
They didn't bring in the sick or the poor, the crippled or the lame or the blind, not to serve them a meal, but to parade them around, put them on display as a theological topic, as a theological talking point, a prop for a debate, really. The poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind were less than human in their eyes, perhaps, worthless to society. Dear brothers and sisters, far be it from us that we should ever treat anyone this way that we should treat anyone made in the image of God in this fashion. Now, I know you all, Redeemer. I know that you are generous, and the love of Christ is in you. But as we read this evening, we ought to examine our hearts and humble ourselves before God. So as you reflect on this passage in the coming week, examine your hearts. Do you sometimes see someone, perhaps on the road, begging for money, and you turn away? Do you see someone on a motorized scooter and just wish they'd hurry up and get out of the way? Or is your first instinct to offer them help? Is it your first thought in your mind to wonder how Christ would reach this person and attempt to do the same? Because that's why Christ came, isn't it? He came for the sick and the needy. And he tells us this back in Luke 4, and I, and I know that we have reread this section in Luke 4 a couple of times, but it's so appropriate. So you remember the situation at the beginning of Christ's ministry. He goes into a synagogue and he reads from Isaiah, and he reads this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty for captives and recovering sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is why Christ came. He came for the very people that the Pharisees rejected and despised. He came for those who have been treated as outcasts. This is why Christ came. It's part of a resurrection view, keeping in mind who he came for. But we also have to ask ourselves in the same way as the man who wished to justify himself when he asked, who is my neighbor? We have to ask, who is the outcast? Who is the poor? Who is the needy? Well, that's quite simple because it's the same answer. We all are. Spiritually, we're all in the most desperate estate of need. We are devoid of any ability to pay back Christ for the good gifts that he's given to his people. All our good deeds are as filthy rags. We all deserve to sit at the foot of the table. The farthest point from Christ's side. And in fact, the only person who can rightfully claim that most honorable spot is Jesus. The only person who could have rightly said, get out of my seat, that's mine. What did he do but at another dinner party, wrapped a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet? And so he would wash all his people by his death on the cross and in his resurrection. So when we understand this, when we come to understand our complete and total dependence on Christ, and when we've applied this to our lives, when we have this resurrection view of ourselves, of our neighbors, and of Christ, then it further humbles us. This is that great equalizer. It puts rich and poor, sick and healthy, old and young, black and white, and any other differences you want to draw between people, it puts us all on the same page spiritually. No one is without the need of the Savior. But let's be clear. This passage is not just talking about 
our spiritual state, but it is talking about our physical need. And the fact of the matter is, some people are in more physical need than others. Some are hungry. Some are hurting. Some need much more than others. So what should our response be? What should we, once we have this resurrection view, once we understand that every person is made in the image of God, deserving of respect, what should we do? Reflect Christ. Live out that resurrection view. Invite the lame and the blind and the poor into your house. Feed the hungry. Clothe the naked. Care for the sick and the imprisoned. That's the teaching in this section. Christ gives a similar teaching in Matthew 25 where he says, For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and we did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Serving our neighbor, serving the poor, the lame, the blind, the sick, that's serving Christ himself. Loving our neighbor is loving Christ. Brothers and sisters, feed the poor. Just as Christ warns us in Matthew, he also offers a promise. It's the promise of eternal life, and we see that in our passage in Luke as well. There is a blessing, and that blessing is the resurrection. We've seen how this passage calls us to examine our hearts, calls us to act, and now we will look at the blessing of the resurrection. So if you'll look with me at the final verse in our passage, verse 14. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. We can't miss that first phrase. You will be blessed because they cannot repay you. There is a blessing in true Christian charity. This is not some, some karmic tit for tat. This is not some uh, modern motion of pay it forward. There is a blessing in physically serving the poor, the lame, and the blind, and the sick. It's the peace of God. It's the joy of the Lord, the encouragement and fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It's also the joy of, of fellowship with another human. What joy it is that you can spend time with a fellow image bearer, caring for their needs, praying with them. That is a blessing that we ought not take so lightly. There is a further blessing. This final sentence tells us that we will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Our reward is not in this earth. Our reward is in eternity with Christ. Our reward is life when we are poor. When we're dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ and his work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, that's life. That's the blessing. And that's what we need, that resurrection view, that understanding of the blessing that helps us lose concern about clamoring for the right spot at the table. We know that our reward is coming with Christ in eternity. It's him who beckons us into his very presence. Bids us move forward 
that much closer. So this view, this understanding of our place with Christ in eternal, with Christ in eternity, should humble us all. It should humble us because we know we're, the, we're not deserving of that place. We're not deserving of that grace. And so we, we come back to what I think is the central verse in our passage, central teaching, verse 11. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the chief thing that all of these different parts are swirling around. It teaches our hearts that the right posture is humility. It teaches our actions not to be selfish, not to be self-centered, but serving others. And we see this most clearly exemplified in Christ himself. And our confession, our, our, catechism, our catechisms, excuse me, point out Christ's humiliation, that he left the splendor of heaven. Why? Who would do that? But that he would leave that splendor, that he was born, that he was subjected to all of life, of all of life's miseries, and that he would suffer and die on the cross. And the very next question asks, what is Christ's exaltation? Well, it's his resurrection. It's his ascension to sit at the right hand of the Father, and it's his coming again to judge the world. Christ humbled himself and then was exalted. So be Christ-like. That's the teaching in this text. Be Christ-like. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a warning to those who would seek their own glory, and it's a comfort to those who would humble themselves. So humble yourself. Humble yourself before Christ and before each other. Outdo one another, as Paul writes, outdo one another in showing honor. Care for the sick and the downtrodden. Humble yourself. And the promise and the comfort here is that we will share in Christ's exaltation. But until then, we have two tasks ahead of us. Until we are with him in glory, humble yourself. And second, a very real, very physical task. Brothers and sisters, feed the poor. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are aware of your greatness and your goodness and your provision in our lives. We who are sinners are in desperate need of your uplifting. So Father, I pray that as we meditate on this text, which is a hard teaching, Father, this is a hard teaching to apply to our lives, that we should humble ourselves and care for those who are in need around us. Father, uplift us with your grace and your mercy. And we thank you, Father, we thank you and we rejoice so much in the provision of your son and his work in the resurrection. Father, give us that resurrection view that we can keep that reward in mind so that here on earth we can be obedient to what you've called us to, that we might humble ourselves and feed the poor. Father, thank you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.